Welcome to the free sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. It's Monday, and we are posting an instant classic for your inspiration. This message may come from anywhere around the globe, but is sure to stay with you for years to come. Make sure to subscribe from wherever you're listening to continue hearing life-changing messages. If you like what you hear, please support World Evangelism by subscribing to the premium version of this podcast for even more sermons. Links are in the show notes. Enjoy today's sermon. Praise the Lord. Praise God. I do appreciate that. I always count it a great honor to be invited to preach here. It's certainly not as difficult a challenge to get me to preach here as he's making it sound. Hallelujah. Uh, and I treasure the friendship of Scott and Gal and his family over the years, his leadership and example. And so I appreciate that. Hallelujah. Let's turn to Second Corinthians chapter 5. I believe God to help us. Hallelujah. Second Corinthians in chapter 5. The story goes that three burly dudes on motorcycles pulled up to a highway cafe and inside they spotted a small man seated on a stool quietly eating his lunch. As the three thugs came in, they decided to torment this little man. So they grabbed his food, ate it in front of him, laughed in his face, The man just said nothing, got up, paid for his food, and walked out. One of the bikers, hoping to have provoked the man into a fight, said to the waitress, sure wasn't much of a man, was he? The waitress shrugged, said, I don't know about that, but pointing out the window, she said, I guess he's not much of a truck driver either. He just ran over three motorcycles with this huge truck. There's something about balancing the books that resonates in our hearts. Can you say amen? There's something about things being made right. And as believers, we need to understand that the word of God speaks of judgment. And not just the judgment of the wicked, but also an accountability to every believer that names the name of Christ. I want to preach a sermon that I believe would stir our hearts in the beginning of this new year. I've called this the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, let's read verse 9 through 11. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. The judgment seat of Christ. I want to look at, first of all, there is a judgment that determines where we will spend eternity. Now, we live in a generation that does not like to think about hell and judgment. One of the amazing dynamics about funerals is that people want to hear about a better place, don't they? But they never want to hear about a worse place. 
I was reading about a story about two brothers who had terrorized a small town for decades. And the younger brother had died unexpectedly and the surviving brother went to the pastor of the local church and said, I'd like you to conduct my brother's funeral, but it's important to me that during the service you tell everyone my brother was a saint. The minister said, but you and I both know he was far from that. The wealthy brother pulled out his checkbook, said, Pastor, I am prepared to give $100,000 to your church. All I am asking is that you publicly state that my brother was a saint. Pastor thought about this, said, okay, fair enough, took the check. On the day of the funeral, the pastor began, said, everyone here knows the deceased was a wicked man whoremonger, and a drunk. He terrorized his employees. He cheated everyone he could. And then he paused and said, but as evil and as sinful as he was, he pointed to the living brother. Compared to his older brother, he was a saint. (laughs) This is mankind. We will go to great lengths to avoid discussion of judgment. Inventing or philosophies, uh, religious doctrines that minimize or explain away one of the popular false doctrines of our days called universalism, that somehow everyone's going to be reconciled to God. If there is a hell, it's not forever. And, 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 and this is the, this is the notion of fallen man. In our text, verse 11 says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, We persuade men. The Bible says unequivocally there will be a judgment and the sad truth is not everybody is going to go to heaven. For the sinner, the Bible talks about the white throne judgment. In Revelations chapter 20, verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire." The Bible talks about uh, a book of judgment uh, where every sin that a man commits or a woman commits is listed in this book. Uh, These books are going to be open and the people are going to be judged according to what are written in those in the book. It does not say God's going to weigh their good against their bad. This is an accounting of debt. This is an accounting of crimes committed before God and before society. The Bible says there is another book separate, and that is the Lamb's Book of Life. This book has the names recorded of those who have repented of their sins and by faith appropriated the blood of the Lamb to wash their sins away. It is literally a book of registry that says this person is a citizen of the New Jerusalem. They have made their affairs right with God. Uh, They are on their way to heaven. Uh, And this is the, the clear declaration 
of the word of God that those whose names uh, have not been written in that book, those whose sins have not been covered by the blood will go to hell. And there isn't enough preaching on that in our generation. And the truth is, it's in the human conscience. People know there's a judgment. That's, I'm convinced that's why I believe heaven's gates and hell's flames draws crowds. Because people are just so amazed that somebody's actually talking about hell that sinners will come to see what it's about. Because it's in the human conscience. In our verse uh, 18 of chapter 5, it says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Look at verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you, we beseech you, be reconciled to God. See, the understanding of hell is not pleasant. That's not a pleasant thing to preach. It's not it's not like some kind of bizarre revenge that Christians get on people that reject the gospel. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. God did not create hell for human beings. God created hell for the rebel, Lucifer, and the, and, and the foolish angels that followed him, but yet The devil has enlisted man in this conspiracy against God. And the Bible says that God's longing is that for every human being to come to repentance, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. I want to tell you, the judgment of a sinner to hell has already taken place before the white throne because that sinner has rejected the only means by which they can be made right with God. It is appointed unto men once to die. And after this, the judgment. There is a judgment that will determine where we spend eternity. Secondly, I want to look that there is a judgment that determines how we spend eternity. One of the great misconceptions about heaven is, well, actually, there, there are multitude. There are many misconceptions about heaven. They, they cover a wide spectrum. I, I love this um, email that was going around. It was a picture of a huge mob of Catholic nuns. They're all very sour-faced and holding shotguns. And the caption said something like this. When Mohammed crossed over to the afterlife, these were not the 70 virgins he was expecting. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. You know, there are some very bizarre notions about heaven. And some of them are are even Christian-based. Obviously, that one's out there. But, you know, one of the most common misconceptions, even among Christians, is that somehow saints in heaven are going to be, you know, hanging out with white sheets, playing harps on clouds. 
I don't know where in the world that came from, but that's weird. It has absolutely no appeal to me. It doesn't do anything for me. It never has ever motivated me to want to go to heaven, other than the fact that that's just got to be one better than frying. But that certainly doesn't sound exciting. Well, thankfully, it's not scriptural. There's another idea that's, that's phony and false, and that is that whatever we are doing in heaven, everyone's going to be the same. I'm here to tell you that that's not true either. Look in our text. Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is not addressing sinners at all. If you look at this in context, he is not talking here about the white throne judgment. Paul is speaking specifically to Christians who die in faith. And he is saying that all believers will stand before Christ in judgment. If you look at this, this, this statement in context, chapter 4 and chapter 5, Paul is actually trying to encourage the church. He is, he is giving them a proper perspective about trials. He's encouraging them that the hardship that they're facing and the persecutions and the trials that they are facing they have an end and there is a payoff and a reward and he is actually talking to the church if you look at chapter 4 verses 16 through 18 he says do not lose heart even though our outward man is perishing yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we do not look at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporary but the things which are not seen are eternal this is the context look at chapter 5 verse 1 and 2 for if we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house made with, with, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. He's saying every believer has a confidence that this life is not all that there is. We have eternal life. Thank God for that church. Look at verse 8 of chapter 5. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He, what he's saying here is even if your stand for Christ costs you your life, even if it becomes so hostile and, and so violent against Christians that you are martyred, this, this was the day and age in which they lived. And he's saying to them, you need to keep a perspective. And this is why in verse 10 he says, we must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not the great white throne judgment that determines where somebody spends eternity. This is known as the Bema seat judgment that determines how a believer will spend eternity. It's talking about position, 
and reward. That word bima that's used is from the Greek, and it has a couple of uses. One is that there was a raised platform from which a ruler would sit and pass sentence. There was another usage, which most commentators believe is the context that Paul is borrowing, and that was from the ancient Olympic Games. This is where the ruler would sit at the finish line and award the contestants according to their performance. And this, this is what Paul is referring to here. And that is that while we are saved by grace, how many of you know we are saved by grace? We will never deserve to be saved. We will never earn our salvation. We can never be good enough for the blood of Jesus Christ. That is a gift. There, but the truth is, while that is true, there will be an examining of our works for Christ. And that is going to determine our status in eternity and our reward in eternity. That's a very powerful truth. A companion scripture in 1 Corinthians 3 and 10, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because... It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Paul is saying very clearly the foundation is Christ. That's the gift. That's the salvation. Now, you and I, every person that names the name of Christ, decides how are we going to build on that foundation. If we build according to uh, uh, temporal, worldly uh, concepts and priorities, he likens that to wood, hay, and stubble. He says, if you live your life for the present, if you live your life for the, the status of this world and the titles of this world and the material gain of this world and the advantages of this life, then what you've done is you've taken a foundation and you've built faulty on it and the wood, hay, and stubble cannot stand the test of eternal fire. There's going to be a test applied. The decisions we make every day of our lives, decisions about righteousness or carnality, Decisions about faithfulness or laziness. Decisions about laboring in the harvest field or disobeying God. These are decisions that God allows us to make. And one day, the, the, the sum total of those decisions are going to be illustrated as a, as a, as a building that we have, we have constructed on the foundation of God's grace. And the test of eternity is going to be applied. And he says, those that build with wood, hay, and stubble, it's going to be burnt. He says, but you can also build with gold, silver, and precious stones. If you know anything about gold, silver, and precious stones, they are not harmed by the fire. They are made more pure and brilliant by the fire. 
These are decisions that are made in context of eternity. These are decisions that are made in, in, in context of holiness and obedience to God. These are the sacrificial decisions. These are the decisions that say, I will pick up my cross and follow Christ and obey him and do what is right and do that which is eternal. I will orient my life and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Uh, and when a person lives their lives daily with those decisions, the Bible says it's as if you are constructing a facility that when the fire of God's judgment is applied to it, it's only going to become more radiant and more brilliant in the accountability of God's gaze. One translation talks about the wood hay stubble. It says, as if you had escaped through fire, but only as one escaping through the flames. I want to thank God that it's by grace that we're saved. But what's important here, not everybody in this room is going to be the same in heaven. I want you to let that sink in. Not everybody in our fellowship, not everybody in the, the professing body of Christ on planet Earth throughout the millennium is going to have the same position and status in eternity. Let me say right here, that does not mean that pastors have a greater reward. It does not mean that missionaries have a greater reward. It doesn't mean that people on the platform have a greater reward. It's interesting, Jesus implied that some ministries have their reward built into them to some degree. Because there is a, a degree of privilege and, 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 and profile and notoriety. The Bible actually says teachers have a greater accountability, that there's going to be double judgment. So just because a person has a position of influence does not mean that their reward is bigger in heaven. We know the story of the widow's might, don't we? That under the gaze of Christ's accountability, this woman who was not in the spotlight and gave of her substance sacrificially, and nobody knew that, God knew that, and he stopped the whole program and said, I want everybody to see this woman gave more than the rest. That's what it's going to be like on Judgment Day. It's not going to be the position. It's not going to be the title. It's going to have to do with decisions that are made before the God of eternal things. Our performance, our faithfulness, how we built on the foundation, what we put priority on, things eternal, the eternal decisions that we make in the face of opportunity, in the face of temptation, in the face of resistance, in the face of persecution, will be purified by the fire of God and will shine as gold, silver, and precious stones. Those things that are temporal, perhaps not evil in themselves. Can you say amen? Yet temporal. Yet having little or no eternal value are like wood, hay, and stubble and are consumed 
And all that will be left is the foundation. Thanks again for listening to the free version of the VBPH Sermon Podcast, where we post sermons on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. We also have a premium version of this podcast, which posts sermons and interviews every single day of the week. So why would you want to subscribe? I'm glad you asked. I have five reasons for you. Number one, on the premium version, we post full versions of Testimony Tuesday, Pastor Campbell Thursday, and Study Day Saturday. If you'd like to hear those episodes, then subscribe now. Reason number two, uninterrupted listening. We remove all ads and all extraneous content from our premium feed. Reason number three, premium episodes always release six hours earlier than the free version. If you're an early bird, it's a great reason to subscribe. Number four, our subscribers will gain access to our sermon chat group on WhatsApp, where we interact directly with listeners around the globe. If you'd like to chat with other premium subscribers, subscribe today. And finally, every dollar we raise goes to world evangelism. This is the best reason to subscribe because you are helping us launch churches all around the world. We don't put one dime in our pockets. Everything that we raise from this podcast will go directly to Thursday night of Chandler Conference. So please subscribe today by using the links in the show notes below. Thanks. Scriptures abound throughout the Word of God, church. There is a judgment that will determine how we spend eternity. Second John and 8, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. It's a powerful thought. He's talking about people that are in mid-race or even maybe in the last lap and saying, you just need to be careful. You don't flush it. Be careful that in your weariness, in the disorienting realities of time, that you don't begin to shift in your attitude about eternal things and, and lose your reward. Lose your reward. Or lose the things we worked for but that we could receive a full reward. That's in the Bible. How many of you brought your Bibles this morning? Revelations twenty-two, twelve. Jesus, and, and, and this is like, these are like final words. These are like Jesus summing up the moral of the story, as it, as it were. He says, behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. To give every man according as his work shall be. So the word picture that's been painted here, church, is as if there's going to be a divine awards ceremony. And believers will be publicly recognized for their faithfulness and their labor and again, this is independent of position. This is independent of any earthly construct of recognition. We're going to be surprised. In eternity, I want to tell you, there is going to be a lot of very powerfully recognized godly men and women who you, whose names you would not know, 
who never testified at conference, who never received an iota of, of public uh, recognition, and yet in their lane, in their course, uh, in their generation, in their opportunity, made decisions for Christ, picked up their cross, said yes to God, and served the Lord. I'm going to tell you, God's going to make it right. And there reminds us that there is a judgment that determines not just where we spend eternity, but how we spend eternity. I'm going to close then with a life well-pleasing. See, these scriptures were not written to condemn us. Paul wrote these to encourage and motivate the believer. Living the Christian life in such a way as to be rewarded is not really difficult. We are not talking about something that is like so up there and unattainable. Verse 9 is, 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 the, is the instruction right here. Verse 9, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. It's as simple as that. We make a decision. I want to live a life that pleases God. I want to please God. I read about a father who was at a meal with his wife and his four sons, and he said, sons, you can't do anything to make your mother or me love you any more than we already love you. He said that statement, you could feel them relax. You could feel them take in the acceptance and the security of a statement like that. He said... What he said next caught them off guard. He said, however, you are in charge of how pleased your mother and I are with you. Can I tell you something? God loves us. But whether or not he's pleased with me is up to me. That's on me. And that's, that's the trigger point that releases and that is a decision. John 8 and 29, Jesus said, He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. How simple is that? Whether you are in the glare of public accountability or in the secret place of your heart, a desire that says, God, I just want to please you. I want my attitudes to please you. You know, God can read our attitudes. The attitudes of the heart, God, I want, you to, I want to please you. That means there are times you, have to, you just have to put up your hand and say, God, I'm off the wall. What I'm thinking right now is the wall. And what I'm feeling right now is worse than what I'm thinking. <laughs> and I, I bring that to you, and I'm, I'm admitting such, and I want to please you. See, we all have flesh. We all, we all are tempted. We all get weary in well-doing. But this is so simple. It simply says, God, I just want to please you. I want to yield to you what it is that I'm, I'm battling with. Because the minute you do that, you can begin to do what is right. You can begin to, Colossians 1 and 10 says, that you may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. 
and fruitful to every good work. That means once you've decided that the, the chambers of your imagery and your heart are going to be a place of pleasing to God, then you can, when you get up in the morning, put your feet on the floor and say, I am going to walk worthy and do what is pleasing to God. You know, we know what God wants us to do, basically. I'm going to do, I'm going to put one step in front of the other, and I'm going to obey you. I'm going to do what's right. And I'm going to do that in the teeth of how I feel. I'm going to do that in the face of what I'm going through. I want to please God. I can remember times, I remember waking up in Kenya, and God was powerfully moving, but I mean, I was beat up. There's times I woke up tired after a good night's sleep. And I, my body hurt. My emotions hurt. My feelings were hurt. My brain hurt. And I, I remember lying there and thinking, you know what, God, today... I'm going to put my feet on the floor and I'm going to put one foot in front of the other for you. It's about all I got, but that's what I'm going to do. I am going to make a decision right now. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go fix up the morning face and put on the best I got and I'm going to go to prayer meeting. That's where we're going to start. And that's about all I got, but that's what I'm going to do. That's what this is talking about. We're not talking about anything, you know, it doesn't take genius to do this. It doesn't take some kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, moral uh, enormity of character. We are talking about a decision to do what pleases God many times in the face of everything else. A life well-pleasing. I'm going to measure all of life's decisions by asking, will this please God? Will this please God? You know, not everything is spelled out in the Word of God. Most of it is. The vast majority, I don't know if you just say 90%, 95%, 98%. It doesn't matter where you mark it. The parts that are not are covered in verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your conscience. Conscience is a tremendous gyroscope. And when in doubt, simply consult God's word and God's spirit in prayer and take inventory of the conscience and say, God, what will please you right here? What is it that you want me to do? And those decisions will get you to the judgment seat in good shape. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, then those that are in the flesh cannot please God. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For him that comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder 
of those who diligently seek it. Reward is a powerful motivator. Listen, I don't need a reward. Just serving the Lord is enough for me. Well, hoop-de-doo to you. Can I tell you something? I am mightily motivated by reward, shamelessly. Because God says I'm allowed to be. It's part of faith. As a matter of fact, faith says, God, you exist and you reward those that do right. And God's pleased by that. So don't give me your super spiritual nonsense. It is a powerful motivator to seek him and live lives pleasing to him against that day, against the day that we break the tape and we find ourselves at the Bema seat and God puts the measure upon our lives. And there's actually, a, the Bible lists a number of crowns, and I'm not going to take a lot of time, but let me just fly through these. There's the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but all those who love is appearing. This crown of righteousness are those that live holy and righteous lives in anticipation of Christ's return. You know, Christ's imminent return is a powerful motivator. I remember when I got saved in 1979, Jesus was coming back. He's still coming back, but it was so real. I mean, you'd have a bad thought, you'd be praying the sinner's prayer, man. I just wanted to be right. I didn't want to get, I don't want to get left behind. When I went to Arizona, motor vehicle uh, and, and got my Arizona license. It said it expires in 1983. We laughed. <laughs> We're not going to be here in 1983. We thought that's hilarious. 1983, come on. It was real. It is still real. He who has this hope in him purifies himself. Jesus said, watch, because you do not know when the thief is coming. This pleases God. This is why it's there. So that you will live life thinking, I don't want to miss him. I don't want to miss the rapture. Oh, sure, I could go do stupid things and maybe come Wednesday night and get it right. But what if you don't got to Wednesday night? What if you don't have to the next altar call? And God is pleased. It's the crown of righteousness. If you will live life in context of the imminent return of Christ, and live clean so that that can be your portion. There's a crown. There's the imperishable crown. 1 Corinthians 9. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. For I run thus, not with uncertainty. I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself become disqualified. This is the victor's crown. Those who have disciplined their lives like an athlete that enables them to overcome and conquer. Temperate. Temperate, that means that you don't live by your feelings. It means that you do what's right whether you feel like it or not. This is what motivates you to pray. It should motivate you to get up in the morning and pray. Cut loose the sheets, man. You don't, don't worship Saint Mattress your whole life. 
What are you be, being legalistic? No, that's that's inane. That's 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 ignorant to even connect legalism to spiritual discipline is is ignorant. We're talking about an athlete, people that win, you know, the Olympics or people that win boxing. They do not live according to their emotions. They get up when they don't feel like getting up and they work out when they don't feel like working out and they moderate what they eat and what they do because they want to win. When you live like you want to win this Christian competition, there's a crown for you. There's a crown for people that discipline their flesh. There is the crown of life, Revelations 2.10. Do not fear those things which are you are about to suffer. Suffer, I'm sorry. Indeed, the devil is about to throw you some, some of you into prison. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is the crown for people who endure persecution. People that can, can live with the fact that not everybody thinks your church is wonderful. Can you live with that? Can you, can you hold your head high and bear the reproach of Christ with honor and say, yeah, that's right. Jesus Christ is my friend. I go to a church that preaches the gospel. Get over it. Whatever that does to me in your social, uh, you know, uh, measurement, it doesn't matter to me. He is my king and my friend. And I don't care if that's popular and I don't care if that's politically correct. Jesus Christ, every, every promise in the book is mine. It's true. And let God be true and every man a liar. You're going to unfriend me? Uh, then whatever. <laughs> there's a crown. There's, there's something that, that says, you know what? Yes, this is my fellowship. I'm proud of my fellowship. And if you don't like that, then go somewhere else. This is what I am. I want to serve Christ. It's, there's a crown for that. There is the crown of rejoicing. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? This is the soul winner's crown. For people who give their time and resources to winning the lost for Christ. This is the decision to witness when you don't feel like it. This is the decision to go to outreach and watch the movie again. Why do we show those same movies over and over and over again? You know, if the first wave generation was, you know, crossing the switchblade, and then it was Fury to Freedom, and then it's Lay It Down, and I don't know what's next. And your kids, they start quoting the movie at the dinner table, and you get red in the face, shut up, I don't ever want to hear that. And they start humming the songs at the Solid Rock. You're like, please, I have to listen to them every week. I don't want to hear them at home. Why do we do that? Because there's only so many good movies in the earth. And we show them over and over again, not because it's popcorn night at the park and your excuse to watch a movie. It's because people need to get saved. It's bait. Bait can be stinky. Bait can be nasty. But as long as it works, you use the bait. Can you say amen? This is not about, gee, I don't have anything else to do Monday night. That's not the point. This is like... The father had two sons, said, go to work in my field today. And the first one said, yes, yes, Lord. And he never went. And the other said, no, I don't want to. I'm sorry, I don't want to. There's a soccer game for my kids or there's this I got to do. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do it anymore. And then later he said, oh, I'm such a loser. I just need to go. And Jesus said, which of the two did the will of the father? He said, the second that means you don't always have to feel like it. 
You just do it. It's, there's a reward in this. That doesn't mean there's, it, it's wrong to, you know, to, to have a night off or something. But I'm saying, look, this is not about whether it fits into our schedule. The harvest, and one day it's going to be over. And we're going to stand before God, and he's going to remember every time you decided to pass a track, every time you decided to go see that movie again. Every time you went to the music scene, every time you put him and the harvest and obedience before something else, God will reward that. And those that are saved will be the reward and be the evidence of the reward. Finally, the crown of glory, the shepherd, the flock of God, which is among you serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not by dishonest gain. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. I believe this is talking about saints who help care for the flock. Not just pastors, not just leaders, not just Bible study leaders, but all those that live life in context of new converts that will moderate what they say at fellowship because there's new converts that will go out of their way to greet somebody that they don't know because they want to help them. The under shepherd. I want to leave you with this. It's not too late for anyone. That's the whole idea of the new year, isn't it? If you're not saved, get saved today. But if you've not been building with eternal materials, you can start today. Verse 15, he died for all that those who live should not live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. Verse 17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know, Peter, he almost blew it. But he repented, didn't he? And you know how he repented? was when Jesus said, do you love me, Peter? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Three times broke his heart at the implications. Do you love me, Peter? Jesus, you know know I want to love you. You know I want to do what's right. I don't always do what's right. I want to. He said, Peter, just get back in the game. Just just reorient the priorities. Get back in the game. And Peter was able to pull it off. Every person, every one of us can do this. Even if we haven't done it last year, we can do it today. Somebody said the best time to start investing was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Let's bow our heads before the Lord. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. The judgment seat of Christ. Thank you so much for listening to the sermon podcast of the Virginia Beach Potter's House Church. Were you blessed by today's message? Let us know. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. We'll be back next time with another life-changing word from heaven. God bless.